if they can make their saline irrigation um, akin to brushing their teeth. Um, it's as healthy as that. As winter drags on, we're all fed up with having blocked up, runny noses. But imagine having these symptoms all year round. A new article on bmj.com sets out how to assess patients with chronic rhinosinusitis and help ease their congestion, and hopefully the congestion in your waiting room as well. I'm Tom Nolan, GP in London and Associate Editor for the BMJ. And to talk about noses, I'm joined by Alam Hanan. ENT consultant at the Royal Throat, Nose and Ear Hospital in London and one of the authors of that article. Hi, Alan. Hi, Tom. Thanks for inviting me. It's okay, you're welcome. Well, I thought we'd start with a quick definition. Uh, can you just tell us what is chronic rhinosinusitis? Well, chronic rhinosinusitis is a medical condition. Um, it's basically defined as inflammation of the nose and paranasal sinuses. And the key thing is it must have one of two symptoms. One of those two must be nasal blockage and or nasal discharge. So you have to have those two to define chronic rhinosinusitis, at least one of them anyway. So when do patients actually come to see doctors about this? When does it become chronic? Uh, well, the definition of chronic in this setting is 12 weeks, three months. Um, so if the symptoms have gone on for that period of time, that, that becomes chronic. But actually, uh, with chronic rhinosinusitis, uh, I've seen patients who've literally had the symptoms for years. And I think partly that's because patients realise that they're a blocked nose and a discharging nose, a reduction in sense of smell. These are relatively innocuous symptoms in the grand scheme of things. And um, we certainly got that impression from our semi-structured interviews when, um, when we spoke to patients um, in preparation for this article. Um, one, one of their worries was also that these symptoms are maybe seen as trivial, which is why they've ignored them for a while. But um, the symptoms, as time goes on, certainly can become quite debilitating, can affect one's sleep, affects one's exercise, concentration at work or at school. So um, certainly require um, um, for us to take them seriously in, in that sense. So, um, But yeah, it varies really. But the definition of chronic is three months, but usually it's much, much longer by the time the patients come and see you could self or um, when they come down um, to see us. And uh, when you're taking a history from somebody with uh, chronically blocked or, or, or runny nose, um, what are the most important factors or points to cover? Well, the first thing I like to ascertain is whether the nasal blockage is a structural thing, um, like a physical block, or it's an inflammatory um, thing. So a structural blockage typically is one-sided. So that could be due to a deviated nasal septum, perhaps a unilateral polyp. So the patient will volunteer without any prompting, oh, doctor, it's my left side or my right side. So that would suggest there's a physical blockage going on. If the patient can't tell which side is blocked or they say it swaps from side to side, typically, and sometimes you can volunteer that um, from them um, with direct questioning, that suggests there's an inflammatory um, situation going on in keeping with a chronic rhinosinusitis. Uh, so that's the first thing I like to ascertain, whether the blockage is either alternating or indeed is just one-sided. Um, after that, then I ask about the discharge, whether the discharge is from the front of the nose, anterior discharge, or is post-nasal drip. Um, I ask if the discharges can be watery or clear, which suggests perhaps allergic or a vasomotor um, you know, cause, um, or indeed if it's mucoid or mucoprolent, which possibly sometimes can be infective. Um, then beyond that, once I've got the 
blockage and discharge out of the way, which I said, as I said before, are the cardinal symptoms, then I'll ask about has there been any, any effect on their sense of smell, whether they're getting any facial pressure or pain as well. So I get the symptoms out of the way first because that g- gives me the diagnosis virtually before I even look inside the nose. Okay. I just want to go back to that mm. um, unilateral symptoms because mm. I think as a GP, uh, it's, it's probably one of the things you might be a little alarmed about or patients might be alarmed about um, is that potentially being uh, from a, a tumour. Is that is, is that what you're thinking if, if you see somebody in clinic with a, a unilateral nasal blockage? Well, the, the, anything unilateral, especially in ENT, because um, you know, two ears and two sides to the nose and stuff, and anything you know, um, unilateral is, can be potentially, you've got to think in the back of your mind, is, there a, is this a red flag issue? But within the nose, if it's something easy to see, and we'll no doubt talk about this more in the examination, but uh, if, for example, I look inside the nose and the patient says they can't breathe properly through the right side, I look inside, there's clearly a deviation of the nasal septum um, going off to that side. Perhaps in keeping, when you talk a bit more, there's been a history of nasal trauma that fallen off a climbing frame as a kid or, you know, footballing injury. Well, that's your answer. That's not a red flag. There, you, know, you could sort of see it there. If, on the other hand, I look inside the nose and I see what looks to be like a fleshy lump, perhaps even just an inflammatory polyp, but if it's one side and the patient's only feeling it on one side, that does require further investigation. And so that, that's an onward referral to ENT because someone's going to have to look inside that nose with an endoscope. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, are there other points in the history which uh, you'd just like to pick up on before we do move on to the examination? Mm, yeah, I mean, so w- once I've got the symptoms out of the way, then I then I ask about other things. At the beginning, I've usually asked what their occupation is because sometimes it's occupational issues um, that can cause um, problems with um, you know, p- people's noses. Um, and then beyond that, um, in terms of systemic history, I always ask about asthma. Um, about the concept in ENT and in fact allergy as well about the it's called the united airway so you know, your nasal airway becomes your lung airway at some stage so asthma and rhinitis often go hand in hand and in fact treating both together is you know nicely um um benefits both together as well so always ask about asthma always ask about allergy um, and in fact, within ENT clinics, almost as the patient walks in, they often have kind of skin prick allergy tests priorly anyway, because um, it's always worth picking up because um, there's, there's sometimes symptoms and the patients will relay during the consultation that can give you a presumptive diagnosis of that. We always like to pick that up. So if the patient mentions that their symptoms are worse over the summer months, June, July, typically that's a grass pollen allergy thing. It could be more spring, maybe that's tree pollen. It could be all year round. That could be house dust mite allergies. It's worth picking those things up because that also puts the emphasis on the patient to um, be responsible for their condition because you can introduce allergen avoidance to all that. Um, There are some other things depending upon... um, uh, other aspects of the history. So, um, if, for example, one of the symptoms they men- mention is nasal crusting, where you get dry crusting, they're picking out kind of crust from the nose all the time. And if you know we're during examination, I see that. Then, then, then one thinks about other systemic conditions that possibly can present in the nose um, with uh, crusting and blocked nose. With I'm thinking of things like sarcoidosis, granulomatosis with polyangitis, those sort of conditions. So, um, one may look into those as well. And crusting is one of the red flag symptoms, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, that's why. Exactly. Unexplained crusting, um, you know, if it's in a particularly, if it's unilateral as well, and if it's associated with ulceration when you look inside, you know, it's uh, something that requires further investigation. Mm. If we just stick with red flags for a moment, um, because there are, one of the red flags, for instance, is is epistaxis, which Mm. is listed um, in the article. Can you actually talk us through what the other red flags are for for this problem? Absolutely. Well, 
In the article, we, we, we um, quoted the red flags as per the commissioning guidelines from the Royal College of Surgeons of England um, in, co- in coordination with our national specialty body, ENT UK. And the red flags there mentioned unilateral symptoms, as we've discussed, um, but, and we've mentioned crusting uh, there as well. One of the red flags there is cacosmia, which is a perceived foul smell. Now, um, that, that is, is a red flag in the sense that if it's unexplained, um, then it requires further investigation. Now, it could be something simple like a foreign body. Um, so if it's a child who um, you know, is coming in um, with kind of a blocked nose, discharging nose, offensive odour, particularly from one side, that's almost um, a foreign body until proven otherwise. Adults much less likely to put things up their nose, although they could do. But so if they've got a foul smell regularly coming from the nose, which is not responding say antibiotics is not an acute thing that again requires um, further investigation um, could be a fungating tumor for example inside there epistaxis in, is in there and, and again that's a red flag in the sense that if it's unexplained if 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 it's explained because an adult's habitually picking their nose um, if it's kind of occurring after inflammations or colds if it's self-limiting they could be you know um, um um, anticoagulants or something like that as well but if it's an unexplained nosebleed especially in a, a youngish adult middle-aged adult that's an unusual age group to have epistaxis epistaxis is very common in young children and elderly patients um, so if it's that middle group and it's unexplained again someone's gonna have to look inside um, that nose to sort of see what's going on and we mentioned some other red flags there which are more to do with the orbital complications or neurological complications there is actually more emergent symptoms that can occur as red flags after um, complications of more of an acute rhinosinusitis. And nasal decongestants can be a problem as well, can't they? Mm, absolutely. So going back to the history, you know, we'll carry on along, I always ask within the drug history um, what um, what they're taking. One of the things that patients um, have forgotten to often volunteer, and, and it's worth doing direct a question regarding this, is that do they use a nasal decongestant regularly to help with their nasal blockage? Patients inadvertently sometimes have become dependent on Sudafed or Otravine or Vixionix, one of these classic things that you can buy over the counter. Um, and it clearly says not to use them for more than a week essentially regularly because of the risk of rebound congestion, which actually has a term, a medical term, rhinitis medicamentosa. Um, and they're often surprised when I say to them that, you know, you must absolutely cease this. And um, the difficult thing is patients, if, especially if they become dependent on nasal decongestants for you know, sometimes even several years, it's the only thing that allows them to sleep, to function. So the last thing they want to hear is that they have to stop this. So um, um, once I can convince them of that and once you can sort of prescribe um, other medication, like some nasal steroid, namely, um, to help them come off their um, habit of um, using nasal decongestant, they'll eventually get better. But that's very important to pick that up. They'd rarely volunteer yeah, it. Well. Yeah, and I've had a few patients similarly affected yeah. uh, and found it really difficult to very stop difficult. to stop taking. How, how long would they expect those rebound symptoms to last when they do stop? Well, again, very much depends upon how long they've had it for. And, and I, I said to them at the beginning that it's going to be difficult, and. Um, um, and I don't expect them to quit like cold turkey straight straight away. So it may be that they're dependent on it two or three times a day. So I say, look, you know, go down to twice a day, but use this nasal steroid at the same time to compensate. Perhaps um, then after a week or so, if you've managed to do that, go down to once a day so they can wean themselves off. But it will take several weeks, maybe even a month or two. Um, so um, like I said, I'd never if they've been on it for a while, I don't expect a, a sudden yeah. benefits and, yeah. and sometimes I have to say patients don't even come back if they think um, um, that they can't do it they're almost embarrassed to come back because they know they've not 
right. um, okay. um, done it, yeah. but, and they've kind of continue on it. But uh, um, but to, it's 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 very very important to get them off that yeah. because yeah. it isn't good for the nose long term. Sure. If we move to the examination, uh, I was thinking that more and more people might give me a call about this sort of symptom, or we have online consultations uh, more and more frequently. Is it absolutely necessary to examine a patient with with these symptoms? Um, it's there's a tricky question because, uh, from a specialist point of view, we have like a rule that every patient who comes in with nasal nasal symptoms has to have nasal endoscopy. Um, that's because um, we need to look right back at the nose. I certainly understand from a primary care perspective you can't do that for every patient, but I think examination does add um, to your diagnosis. As we know, in medicine as a whole, eighty five percent of your diagnosis comes from the history. So really, most of the time, you, you know, to be frank, you can tell what's what. Um, so I suppose you could have online consultation in that regard you know um, um, but examination does add some benefit at least 10% so I would say it was worthwhile looking at some stage but if the sim- if there's no red flags if there's you know if you're quite confident of the diagnosis from the history um, there's no reason why you can't um, trial a you know nasal steroid in between so yeah okay and the things that one might see on an examination you've mentioned already uh, polyps um, uh, can you just run through for us because it's something that I, I always forget you know the difference between polyps and turbinates and yeah. other, other things so just run through that for us please absolutely yeah. and that was, well certainly in primary care I mean one's able to look in the nose with just the notoscope and that's uh, that's you know I wouldn't expect anything more necessarily I don't expect anyone to be using thudicum speculums and all the endoscopes otherwise and with an otoscope you'll be able to tell the difference between uh, a polyp or a turbinate and it's an important difference um, so the turbinates which they come from the side walls of the nose they tend to be pink in color slightly fleshy looking and if they're if the patients do have kind of allergic rhinitis tend to be quite engorged so I can understand why they're mistaken for nasal polyps but the key difference is polyps are asensate so if you um, take a probe in the in, in, in your consulting room or even just a cotton bud if you touch a turbinate the patient will say ouch um, they'll feel it and they'll tell you they, they feel it if on the other hand you see in, look inside of the nose and you see some a, a fleshy lump uh, slightly kind of implant, um, um, blocking the nose you're not sure whether it's a turbinate you can't tell if it's coming from the lateral wall um, if you touch a nasal polyp they're typically asensate so the patient can't feel it you can actually probably even move it around and then it can't feel pain at least anyway um, also inflammatory polyps they have the appearance slightly glistening like a bit like a, a peeled grape um, so I, I would uh, encourage touching either a turban or polyp whatever the lesion you think is if they feel it likely a turban if they don't feel it it's likely a polyp so it's, it's worth palpating, basically. Okay. And we'll come on to um, what that can mean for the management mm. Uh, mm. It, uh, shortly. Let's say you have your patient in front of you, you've ruled out any red flags, you can't see any polyps when examining them, uh, they're not overdoing the decongestants, and you don't feel that this is an allergic cause. Um, how are you going to explain to the patient what's going on? Well, if, if I've made... From the history, kind of that, that this is going to be a diagnosis of a rhinosinusitis sort of um, picture. The first thing I explain to the patient that this is uh, essentially a medical condition because patients come into ENT often are thinking um, there may be some surgical solution to this. Um, I often use with patients that. Um, the term asthma of the nose. I think patients seem to understand asthma. Everyone, they all know someone with asthma, and they understand that asthma is a medical condition that requires medical therapy, namely um, um, steroid inhaler. Um, so it just 
allows me to basically um, convince the patient to comply with them using a nasal steroid. I think sometimes by the time the patients come to us, they're fed up of having tried steroids, nasal steroids for a, a week or two, and they've just given up. So um, that's the first thing I explain how that th- this requires them to comply with this medication. Um, and by doing that, um, and then also explain how to use the medication properly. That often is, is beneficial going forward. If there are any allergic symptoms as well that we've picked up either from skin prick testing or we're just part of the history, I explain also that that's important from the patient perspective because allergen avoidance is, is, is something that they need to do. Um, so that adds adds further um, um, onus on them really to, to basically be responsible for their particular treatment. Okay. And, and so... At this point, what, what would you then offer the patient? Well, um, having made the diagnosis, uh, essentially the mainstay treatment for chronic rhinosinusitis is a nasal steroid. Um, so we start off with typical steroid nasal spray. Um, they may have tried some of these things over the counter, um, which we'll combine with the um, and um, by the time they come to secondary care, if that's the case, then you can go into steroid nasal drops. There's various preparations like flixinase nasals, betanosol nose drops. You can't use those indefinitely because there is an element of systemic absorption down the line, which is not the case with nasal steroid sprays. But it can give a kickstart to their benefit. Um, the key thing with this, um, uh, having explained to them the fact that they need to take the steroids regularly, um, I, 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 at this point, I, expl- I asked them how they've been using their nasal steroid sprays up to this point or the drops, and we talk about how to actually do it properly. And, and how would you talk through that with them? Well, but the first thing with the um, nasal sprays, for example, like, um, it never really surprises me when they look at me kind of like surprised as to how to, to use them, um, because um, I explain how with the nasal steroid, it shouldn't just be put into the nostril aimed up to the top, which is what they usually do. It should be aimed towards the back of the nose and towards the ear on the same side as such. So you're hitting the turbinates and the lateral wall, which is, as I say to the patients, these are the business parts of the nose as such. Um, I also tell them not to sniff and they always get surprised about that because it's almost like a natural thing to do after you use the nasal spray of some kind to sniff afterwards because that takes most of the spray down the throat. So you're just meant to gently inhale afterwards. Can you tell us a bit about the efficacy of the, the intranasal steroids? How likely are they to work? Are patients likely to be able to stop taking them? Um, there's been many, many studies, um, in fact, meta-analyses of um, randomised controlled trials um, about nasal steroids in this um, um, setting of this condition. Um, and ultimately, it all comes up to a grade A recommendation. So there's a lot of data out there regarding that. Specifically for um, explaining to patients how useful nasal steroids are, because um, I would explain to them that um, as, as that the nasal steroid is the mainstay therapy because not only will it sort out their sense of blockage and discharge but it helps their sense of smell by reducing inflammation in that kind of area um, at the top of the nose um, patients often ask that do I have to take this forever and I always explain to them that how steroids are effectively like teachers or trainers for the nose they're immunomodulators unlike other um, medications like nasal decongestant which actually cheats they work for a short period of time and then they when they wear off you know, you know it bounces back to how it was if not worse but nasal steroids over a period of time have effectively 
taught your nose and sinuses how to behave. So I sort of give hope to patients that basically as long as you take a, a prolonged course initially, it could be that they could be something that they resort to on an as-required basis or have top-ups down the line. The other thing with nasal steroids, um, one can actually increase doses. So some patients, for example, may use a spray for a bit. Maybe in the summer season, they may have to go to a nasal drop, a steroid drop, and then drop back down to a spray. There could be periods of time where they don't use it. Because these are lifestyle symptoms, the patient's effectively in control of that. But it should be something that I tend to recommend is it should be a repeat prescription for them to use at least as required down the line. Um, but there are some patients, for example, nasal polyps, who really ought to take it regularly. Um, otherwise, their polyps will just simply grow back much faster, um, requiring further attention down the line. Okay. And, and these are medications that can be safely put on repeat prescription. Mm, yeah. So, so nasal steroid sprays, I mean, uh, the the, um, the absorption systemically for them is negligible. The license for children as young as six. So, um, yeah, certainly for adults. And again, I mentioned those to adults. So, because pa patients do worry about the word steroid when you mention it. And, I, uh, and, I, and I, again, I give them the analogy that this is like a steroid inhaler for asthma, which no one ever really questions taking, you know, two to four times a day, or indeed a steroid cream for eczema. Same sort of, sort of situation. So patients feel relieved about that okay yeah. and uh, i mean i was thinking about different nasal steroids because there, mm. there are a whole range of them mm. some you mm. can purchase over the counter others not um is it worth as a gp you know as a stage before referring a patient you know trying a stronger steroid nasal spray or it, it, or are they all pretty much the same in terms of their efficacy um, to some extent, they're similar um, in terms of their efficacy, but um, the, the later generation nasal steroids, um, they tend to have better compliance as well. Um, it's partly because like um, um, the excipients that are inside the actual medication allow the patient to be less irritated by them. Um, and so certainly in secondary care, we tend to kind of pre you know, prescribe more so, I think it's like the Nasonex or the Avamis um, 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 nasal steroids, partly because the patients have often tried beconase or flixinase over the counter elsewhere um, beforehand. Um, so those are the ones I tend to give. I suppose it's worth mentioning here that there is a, um, a nasal combination nasal steroid antihistamine, Dimista, that's on the market at the moment as well. And that's known as, um, that's classified as second line therapy. So if patients with an allergic rhinosinusitis, Dimista can be a useful um, upgrade in their treatment as well. It just saves them taking an antihistamine separately. And so a lot of patients have found that useful. Uh, and something else which I think may be worth mentioning is uh, saline irrigation as well. Oh yes, 100%. I should have mentioned that at the beginning, sorry. But like I'm, I'm a massive fan of saline nasal irrigation. Um, um, it's an immensely useful adjunctive treatment for any nasal condition, not just chronic rhinosinusitis. And the lovely thing, as I explained to patients, it's not a drug. It's, um, it's effectively harmless. And it's more than just a simple flush of any irritants or pollutants or allergens. It's got a almost a sort of semi-therapeutic ability to it because it puts the cilia within the nasal cavity, within, um, within the sinuses, in the right atmosphere to basically start working properly again. So um, enormously beneficial. Um, one thing patients like to hear as well, that it's been around for a long time. Um, I was mentioned to them that how, you know, we've... In ENT, we've not made this up ourselves. I mean, there's been lots of research that's been done over the last 50, 60 years showing proven efficacy of this. And in fact, saline irrigation is a grade A recommendation based on you know, meta-analyses of clinical trials. But I explain how actually it's um, uh, it's a yogic practice, uh, something called Jalaneti, which is uh, uh, where yogics for the last 2,000 years have been practicing saline irrigation of their nose as part of their uh, meditation, where they're using little neti pots with salt water um, as part of this cleansing ritual. So it's been known about for a long, long time. Um, and in fact, some patients recognize that because they they've had neti pots at home from 
ages ago, but uh, um, but very very beneficial, yeah. and um, and you certainly can't go wrong with it. And like I say, it's a great recommendation. Is it is it difficult to, to do? Have you have you done it yourself? I, 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 yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can use um, um, saline irrigation, particularly after a prolonged cold. Um, it's, there's various ways to do it, and there's lots of devices that one can buy. You can buy simple um, sprays, um, which is a nice innocuous way to do it. There's Sterimar C sprays, which are gentle mist up into the nose. Some people prefer that. And there's lots of positive pressure devices that one can one can squirt into the nose. Um, initially, when you try it, it's a little bit, you know, fulsome inside there. You know, it kind of, kind of makes your eyes feel a bit kind of you know, bulge out. But once you get used to it, you really do feel a cleansing um, aspect afterwards. Uh, I don't want to get too gory here, but basically, when you've got a cold, for example, you blow your nose and you, stuff comes out, you feel great. If you do saline irrigation afterwards, you'll be amazed at how much stuff has been left behind, which only comes out after it's been irrigated. Because the way the sinuses are in the head, they're like sumps. So actually, you can't just simply blow stuff out necessarily, especially um, if you've got a chronic condition. Um, those sumps can kind of have you know, debris and stuff stuffing in there. So the irrigation really helps it out. So I think, I, I, again, one thing I say to patients, um, if they can make their saline irrigation um, akin to brushing their teeth, um, it's as healthy as that. So dentists have done great work in making tooth brushing a, a, an essential thing to do twice a day. Um, saline irrigation of the nose, especially if you've got a nasal condition, I think should be next to your toothbrush. Um, so that way you don't forget it. <laughs> Excellent, well, that's really useful, thank you. Um, now, we um, had a look into saline irrigation, and when you Google things, you tend to find some some scare stories as well, don't you? And we did see one about uh, amoebic infection leading to death. I mean, is, is, is this is this uh, a, a real risk? Would you say? No, no. I think, as you know, when, when you when you um, look at things on the internet, there's so many scary things that are out there and stuff like that. I mean, it's um, the, the key thing, I suppose. Um, and again, it's mentions with all the kind of irrigation devices used. You kind of you can't uh, you've got to make sure it's all clean um, as, as well. I mean, um, so if you're using neti pots irrigation devices, you should be changing them over perhaps every kind of you know, couple of months or something like that generally. Um, and using sort of boiled water. Um, some people go as far as using sterilized water. You don't have to do that. I myself just use kind of boiled water that's been cooled um, when I've used it. So I think it's just as with anything, just making sure it's kind of yeah. clean. Yeah, and the recipe to make it yourself perhaps we should mention that um yeah go, go oh yes yeah so basically i mean by all means you know some people just prefer to keep buying the little sachets that yeah. you can sort of get ready made it's a bit easier but actually you can make these um, things yourself so as long as you know, everyone's got the boiled water you can simply get like a little teaspoon of salt and a half a teaspoon of baking soda um add a little alkaline kink to it let that all dissolve inside that um, um boiling water let it all cool down um in a pint glass um should have said a pint worth of boiling water and that would um um be your solution for the day or two you can use that so um there's so lots of patients do make it up themselves and um i think we've got that in our article mentioned yeah yeah are there any other sort of home remedies that people people try or that you would recommend um uh, lots, lots of patients um, 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 talked about various um, remedies that they've tried. I mean, I think difficult, as you know, doctors, because you could have some evidence to some extent to sure. recommend anything. Um, but uh, it's I know dairy comes up often, actually. It's like people cutting out dairy yeah. um, and how, how that helps their nasal symptoms, actually. There's little evidence that that can be the case, partly because I suppose dairy reduces the viscosity of mucus. It might make them feel a bit better. But... Um, but uh, uh, apart from the saline irrigation, that's my sort of favourite thing. I have to stick to that. Okay. Uh, one thing we often get asked about, particularly if the 
the discharges, some mucopurulent, is, is antibiotics. Is there any place for antibiotics in, in, in chronic rhinosinusitis? It, so it's interesting in in the in you know in the acute situation, which is a whole different ball game, of course, is antibiotics. But in the chronic situation. Um, um, in terms of, say, mucopurulent discharge, although that can suggest there's some sort of chronic infection going on, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Just because the um, the mucus is, you know, is, is stained kind of green or brown just means there's lots of neutrophils in it. It doesn't necessarily mean there's a bacterial infection that requires antibiotic therapy. Again, um, the first treatment would still be a nasal steroid, saline irrigation um, going in that direction. Um, having said that, um, you, you may have seen from letters come back from ENT um, that you know the ENT um, colleagues may have started macrolide antibiotics in particular, whether it's clarithromycin, erythromycin, azithromycin, and the rationale behind starting a macrolide antibiotic for the chronic um, disease is based upon their anti-inflammatory and immunomodulatory effect, not necessarily their antibiotic effect. There were a couple of studies um, a while back um, showing um, um, that. Uh, a prolonged, lo- low-dose, long-term course of a macrolide antibiotic had a beneficial effect with patient-reported outcome measures um, in re- um, with chronic rhinosinusitis, um, akin to actually doing surgery, which we'll talk about later. So, therefore, giving a, a low-dose, long-term course of a macrolide became part of what's called maximal medical therapy. Unfortunately, those studies... Um, were quite heterogeneous as well. They were using different drugs, different doses. There was like, different agreements between them, and there were some controversies down the line as well. So the bottom line is it cannot be nothing more than a grade C recommendation. Um, and also there's certain specialist things that one should look at because it's more appropriate particular subsets of chronic rhinosinusitis, you know, once one's done blood tests to work things out. So actually, I think that should remain a specialist thing. Um, and also, there's been some press recently um, in journals, I think, um, um, the New England Journal of Medicine. In fact, um, things like you know, risks of um, to, um, of heart, particular heart um, and cardiac issues with them, clarithromycin, um, and some other renal issues as well. So I think one has to be wary about giving those. So it should remain a specialist thing, I think. And I think I myself have become more reluctant to kind of prescribe long-term low-dose uh, macrolide antibiotics uh, uh, generally because, you know, like I say, it's a, it's a crazy recommendation. So it does have a role, but it needs to be studied better. Um, there, um, and there are some upcoming studies regarding this. So there is a, you know, that's, uh, that's I suppose, the, the, the full answer with that is really out there Okay, thank you. If we return to, to polyps then for a moment, um, you write about medical polypectomy in the article. Can you can you tell us about that? Well, that that that's a phrase I like to use with patients as well because um, trying to get away from surgery should always be a last resort. So this is a way of kind of basically getting rid of their polyps virtually um, from from the outset. So. Once you make a confident diagnosis of chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps, um, which we can sort of diagnose when it looks inside, if you made that diagnosis, then actually there's, again, a grade A recommendation, you know, meta-analysis of trials that show that giving a, a short course of prednisolone, I tend to give 30 milligrams um, seven days short sharp course doesn't require reducing regimen afterwards um basically shrinks down those polyps patients get their um nasal blockage sorted they're discharged less they often uh, get their return of sense of smell which they're delighted about and so that's effectively a medical polypectomy Um, and then thereafter they can maintain themselves on a simple nasal steroid spray going forward with the saline nasal rinsing. So that's part of maximal medical thor- therapy for patients with chronic rhinosinusitis with a confident diagnosis of nasal polyps. And something that in primary care or uh, you know, outside the ENT setting, yeah. 
a GP may feel confident to do that? You'd recommend a GP? Yeah, I think think if you can make a confident diagnosis of nasal polyps, bilateral, so not unilateral, um, we see these like, you know, um, um, sort of grape-like polyps inside the nose, asensate to the touch. They've got all the other symptoms there. I think think a short course of nasal... um, um, prednisolone uh, would be useful. I mean, it's sometimes it's actually made easier as well. If the patient's got a history of chronic rhinosinus and nasal polyps before, maybe they've had surgery 10 years ago, you know um, they, they could be co-occurrences. So if that if that history's there, even more reason to do it. I mean, certainly from a secondary perspective, that's the first thing we'd do. Um, and then we'd review them thereafter um, to see if there's anything further that needs to be done. But uh, very, very worthwhile thing. And as that, again, it's a, it's a great a recommendation yeah. for those with nasal polyps. So I'm thinking, as again, as a GP, thinking yeah, quite a lot here. I can do before I refer many of the patients who, who have these symptoms to to, to yourself. Um, when we do make a referral, what you obviously do the flexible nasal endoscopy, and I'm sure there's discussions about surgery and what the role is of surgery in, in this problem. Can you talk talk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean. I, I try to avoid mentioning surgery from the outset because, again, and I, the very first thing I mentioned this is the medical condition with them. So once um, um, I've done all that, and if at um, follow-up, usually that um, whereby basically their symptoms may still be an issue. So we've tried maximal medical therapy. We've maxed out with whether it's prednisolone, maybe there's a renomacrolide involved, um, whatever it might be. Then one, one's looking towards what further can an ENT surgeon do. Um, so this is the point where basically a CT scan is often indicated um, because CT scan is not required for the diagnosis of chronic rhinosinusitis with or without nasal polyps. It's basically acts as a almost like a sat-nav, a roadmap to plan and kind of um, define surgery down the line. Um, in fact, it's you know, necessary for surgery if it needs to be. But um, so, but, but the very first thing I mentioned to patients that we're heading in that direction, I explained to them that surgery is effectively like a plumbing job. And, um, you know, I, I, I liken their sinuses to a blocked kitchen sink. They've tried their best with drain cleaners and all the usual things. It's got to a stage we have to call the plumber. So... And that makes them realise that actually you can't keep calling the plumber because they have to be responsible for keeping their drains clean and stuff down the line. So um, I simply explain how endoscopic sinus surgery, very effective in dealing with these symptoms. It certainly can clear their nose, they're dischargeable with less. Um, it's, it, there's, a, there's a likelihood that their sense of smell will be better, although you can't necessarily guarantee that, that's another thing. But certainly those symptoms will be, um, initial symptoms, the cardinal symptoms will be better. Um, but I, I always explain to them, not to think that it's going to be curative because a lot of patients think oh thank god someone's going to do some surgery i'm going to have to get rid of these sprays i don't have to bother with the nasal rinsing anymore and um i'm always explaining to them no the surgery makes those things work better it simply acts to um, as a plumbing job it ventilates the sinuses it allows your medication to get to the right places so they must continue with a nasal steroid afterwards so some of them look a bit disappointed with that fact and if um but if they've got to a stage where their symptoms are so bad and we do surgery, um, they're willing to go ahead. So just before we, we end, uh, what would your take-home messages be for those listening? Um, well, just to reiterate um, some of the things we've discussed, I mean, um, um, it, chronic rhinosinus sinusitis, when patients present with these symptoms, they you know they often are embarrassed by them because they recognise them as being kind of relatively innocuous, but uh, and they, they worry that we may see them as trivial. And so it's just you know, taking them seriously um, always. On top of that, um, I think uh, it's worth always making patients understand that this is a medical condition, um, which requires basically them to um, 
um, take on particular advice like allergen avoidance if it's appropriate, but more most importantly, are complying with the medication that's prescribed. Patients often think, oh, there's an ENT surgeon in the background somewhere that's going to fix this with surgery. So it's right, right from primary care, you can sort of um, burst that bubble, say that surgery doesn't cure this. Um, surgery um, simply just makes the medication work better. So if the medication is working well from the outset, that's that's what needs to be done. Um, so I think um, that would be my take on medicine. It's a medical condition that can be largely dealt with in primary care, I would think. Thank you. You've been listening to Alam Hanan talking about the management of chronic rhinosinusitis. The article is now available on bmj.com. The link should be in the text. That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back soon with more free CPD. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss out on those. I'm Tom Nolan. Thanks for joining us, Alan. Thanks very much for having me, Tom. Bye for now.